We're in a series, Word Rooted Prayer and Worship, Keeping Your Heart Close to the Flame. Coming into a stretch of text that I really enjoy, I hope you do too, the title tonight, as I hinted this morning, Worship, Establishing, and that's the word I would underline, Establishing the Presence of the Lord. Not just occasionally experiencing the presence of the Lord, precious as that is, establishing the presence of the Lord. 2 Samuel 6, 11 to 15. If, by the way, if you didn't get notes, if you somehow missed notes or a prayer list, they're ready right at this second at the back. And if you just wave your hand, they will bring and make sure you get it. All right? So they're looking at, they're looking at you right now. 2 Samuel 6, 11 to 15 Strangely, I'm not actually speaking on this text tonight, but I need it for a background. 2 Samuel 6, 11 to 15. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, quote, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. By the way, pause there. Scholars actually believe, though the text doesn't say it, it implies it. When they had gone six steps, they offered a sacrifice. And the idea behind it is they go six steps to Three, four, five, six. Everybody stops. A sacrifice is offered to the Lord. One, two, three, four, five, six. Everything stops. A sacrifice is offered to the Lord. What you see in that is a picture of this walk of worship in the presence of God. I just wanted to highlight that. Eleven. David, very excited. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. The title that I chose, Worship, Establishing the Presence of the Lord, it fits with the desire of David's heart at this point of his reign. He is now the new king over Judah. He was crowned king in 2 Samuel chapter 2. You can read about it right after the death of Saul. David wants to do a good job. It's a demanding role. And more than that, because he had a heart for God, David didn't want to just be an effective king. He wanted to be a godly king. More than anything else, David wants to establish the presence of the Lord for his term as ruler. He has just come freshly off the scene of seeing the errors, the blind ambition, the deceitfulness of Saul. David doesn't want to be like that. David wants to be a man, a king, a ruler after God's own heart, and he's wise enough to know that at that time, the central Uh, visible, 
representation of the presence of God was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the symbol of God's abiding with them. The commandments of God were in that Ark. The mercy seat was on top of that Ark. The tokens of God's special presence as he delivered millions of Jews from Egypt and the hand of Pharaoh, they were in that Ark. And David knew he still had lots of enemies to be delivered from. Lots of them. And here's the thing. Somehow David related the ongoing deliverance of his people to God's presence among them. Give David great credit for that. It wouldn't be just his skill and it wouldn't just be their military might that would preserve them. It was the presence of God, at least his manifest delivering presence. And that was related to Israel's worship. Even there, there's an important insight. David wasn't some charismatic fanatic. He just wanted to defeat his enemies. He wanted protection on the borders of his land. And he relates that to worship. I think it's important, isn't it, to remember that vitality and sincerity in worship isn't, we think of it as just being somehow related to the charismatic movement or some Pentecostal blessing. And David isn't thinking that way at all. David is not PAOC. David just wants God's preserving, protecting power over the boundaries of all that is his reign and the worship of God is at the center of that. So it's not just blessing that he's after. It's protection. It's deliverance. Saul really hadn't cared much about that ark. He actually left the ark totally undefended, ignored, at the house of Abinadab. He left it there for 20 years. 20 years. He never bothered to send some delegation of troops even to bring it back. He's forever, Saul is the picture of a man who got so involved in pursuing his own ambitions as a leader that the central place of worship and the presence of the Lord became marginalized. So involved in his role as leader that he forgot about the manifest presence of the Lord. And here's, if you don't think that's relevant, you think of, we've seen a lot of very prominent big name ministries collapse when people get absorbed in effectiveness and leadership and size and budget and expertise and forget about the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. To his credit, that's what David is after. Now, we won't actually get into the sixth chapter from which we read at the beginning. We won't do that very much until next Sunday night. I took the time to read it just to help set the stage for what led up to David's celebration of the ark. Before David goes to get it, 
it had been deserted by Saul long before. So to make more sense of today's text, let me quickly go over the background that led up to the events as we read them. You need to go back in time a little bit. The final years of the reign of Saul. David isn't king yet as we look back. The final years of the reign of Saul, the capture of the Ark of the Lord by the Philistines, the collapse of the priesthood of Eli, and all of those events are recorded in 1 Samuel chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. We'll just study the background chapters today. We're going to read more scripture together maybe than usual. Sorry. And next week we'll get into 2 Samuel 6 in detail. So here's some background stuff, and I want to pull some lessons out of it. One, Judah was defeated badly by the Philistines and failed to take the time to discern discern the reason for her weakness. Judah's defeated and doesn't understand why she was defeated. That's in 1 Samuel 4, 1 and 2. That's in your notes, right? Okay. And, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel... Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now those two verses explain what happened. Judah took a whipping from the Philistines. And you can tell from the very next verse, the people are perplexed as to why the Lord allowed them to be beaten so badly. You can see just how blind they all were to the true cause of their misery. It's in that third verse of 1 Samuel 4. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, look at this question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. Let us bring back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So to their credit, at least they realized that their defeat wasn't just due to the army of the Philistines. They knew that no enemy was a match for the God of Israel. So far, so good. So they're going to fix things. The middle of that third verse. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Of course, that was the problem. We didn't have the Ark of the Lord. We lost the battle because we didn't have the Ark with us, so we'll go down to Shiloh, we'll get the Ark, and God will trample the Philistines under our anointed feet. It all seems so clear, only it wasn't the problem. They didn't lose the battle with the Philistines because they didn't take the ark with them. There was a different reason for their weakness, and the text actually describes it in detail. You just have to read a little bit. 1 Samuel 2, 12 to 17. Now the sons of Eli, Eli the high priest, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who is sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. And here's the point. 17. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So Eli was the priest. His sons, under his training, ministered with him. So in other words, these men were in charge of the worship system of the people. But the worship of the priesthood first, and then consequently of the rest of the people, had become corrupt. It, it, it wasn't done the way God said it was to be done. Make a mental note of those words for a minute. The worship wasn't done the way God said it was to be done. I caught a badger, and he's got two broken legs, but I'm bringing him for offering. And the priest says, well, you can't, I'm sorry, you, you can't offer that. And I say to the priest, I say, well, it's, but I'm, it's my heart that matters. And he says, well, you do have to worship with a pure heart, but you also have to have the sacrifice according to instruction. Because it isn't just a matter of your heart. It's a matter of worshiping as God says he is to be worshiped. Now look at God's response to this corruption of worship. 1 Samuel 2, 27 to 33. Y'all still with me? Now there came a man from God to Eli. Can you imagine this setting? A man from God, don't know his name, came to Eli, said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves with the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father shall go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. I hope you realize the magnitude of what we just read. God declared, I promised that your house and the house of your father shall go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, 
Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. My mom would say that verse to the four Horban boys every time we said we had to stay home from church Sunday night because there was a big exam Monday morning. And somehow we were occupied Saturday and didn't have the time to study. And we'd say we need to stay home because it's grade 12 and it's a final exam. And my mother would say, to those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Get up at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning and study for the exam. The Lord continues, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of man. Wow. Behold the issue of worship. Because the people were corrupt in the way they worshiped the Lord, they became powerless in all the other areas of life. And like most of us, they didn't see the connection between those two things. They didn't see the connection. What does a piece of boiled meat in a pot have to do with defeating the Philistines with an army? You can rephrase that worship question in a thousand different ways. What does going to God's house regularly have to do with a strong marriage? What does Bible study have to do with victory in the battle with temptation? What does bringing my offering before the Lord have to do with my addiction to pornography? And the Lord answers those questions very specifically in one of the great life verses found in this passage. 1 Samuel 2 the last part of verse 30, the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And I wonder, in churches across Canada, coast to coast, how many people will call out to the Lord in their time of need only to be lightly esteemed. Can anything be worse than that? Can anything be worse than that? I wonder how many people will cry out to the Lord about a wayward teenager never remembering the loose habits of worship they established in their home years ago. I wonder how many people will cry out for deliverance from temptation or a binding habit, never thinking about the fact that they scatter off from church to church, never read their Bibles at home, doesn't bother them to rob God 
with tithes and offerings. See, see, people never link those battles. The winning of those battles with purity and faithfulness and obedience in worship. Remember that lesson, church, all your life. Nothing determines the direction and success of your life like honoring the Lord with a sincere, obedient heart of worship. Oh, that leads to the second point. Two. We're well into it now. Judah believed that taking the ark into battle with them would guarantee victory over their enemies. You can see it in, it's in 1 Samuel 4, just verses 3 to 10. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise, they must have been close and it must have been really noisy because they heard it. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? What's going on? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, (laughs) and Israel was defeated. And they fled. They turned and ran. Every man to his house. And there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. This is really instructive. Remember the real cause of Judah's defeat from the previous point. She was disobedient to the call to honor the Lord in her worship. The solution wasn't taking the ark of the Lord into battle. The solution was to forsake disobedience and to commence honoring the Lord with their worship. There's so many lessons here. I can never use the past history of a walk with God to somehow compensate for present neglect in honoring the Lord. The ark of the Lord couldn't be used as a lucky rabbit's foot just to ward off evil and bring God's blessing. God doesn't deal in superstition. He deals in obedience and worship from God-honoring, God-obeying hearts. So you can read, if you want, the rest of chapter 4. As a result of their spiritual failure, the ark of the Lord was taken into captivity by the Philistines. What a... Graphic lesson, nothing else in our walk with the Lord will sustain its power, life, fruitfulness without integrity of heart. That's what the men's meeting that's going to be on Wednesday night. Integrity of heart and purity of worship. David had a big army. There was no military reason to lose these battles. 
there was a worship failure. And worship failure doesn't just mean lack of blessing. It means lack of protection. Point number three. I was trying to think of how to word this. This might not be perfect. We're so used to thinking of the presence of God as what we hunger for. And here you have an example of the opposite, and it's hard for us to deal with. The presence of God is a constant source of irritation to those who don't honor him. You can see it. This Ark of the Covenant, it was nothing but a pain producer. The Philistines had the Ark, the same Ark. Look what happens. 1 Samuel 5, 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon, this is an idol of their God, had fallen face downwards on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So maybe, you know, a wind or something. So they took Dagon, put him back in his place on the pedestal. And when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. We don't want God's presence. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They said, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So first at Ashdod and then at Gath, the ark of the Lord caused nothing but pain and misery in the Philistine camp. The presence of God had actually become a pain rather than a blessing. Opposing God's will doesn't somehow chase his presence out of his world and out of your circumstances. It's his world he made it. He rules it. Opposing God's known will in any area of life, even when it looks convenient and simple and a solution to a problem, 
if it's opposing his will, it simply sets everything about the rest of your life against the grain of God's will. And you get all the splinters. Nothing in the world could have fixed the situation for the Philistines except humility, confession, repentance. It's at this point the Philistines say, get rid of the ark of the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, they put it on a cart. It's pulled by two cows. Remember that for next teaching. And without any help or any direction or any prompting, the cows just immediately head for the border of Judah. So, so here's what happens. Because of Saul's insensitivity to the presence of the Lord, the ark landed at the house of Abinadad on the way home, and it remained there for 20 years. That's 1 Samuel 7, 1 and 2. And Saul doesn't even miss it. Doesn't even miss it. Somehow, these are God's people. So I, I think about this and I try and think about my life. The people had ignored God's pattern for worship for so long that they didn't even notice that the very symbolic hub of God's presence was nowhere to be found. Yeah. What are we supposed to learn here? Can we, here's a soul-searching question, answer it for yourself. Is it possible for people like us to get so used to doing the things of religion that we don't notice that God isn't here anymore? Is that a possibility? That, that you can get so used to just maintaining and sustaining the machinery of any religious organization and just get doing it and wanting to do it better and working to do it better and better and 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 nobody stops to say but the ark of the lord his commandments in that ark the mercy seat where lives are changed by his grace the provisions the manna, all that that represents was a picture of. You can get used to maintaining the externals of a religious existence that even without the presence of God, it can start to feel normal. You just, you just get consumed with other things. So as this background study closes, so does Saul's reign. It's going to end badly. You know the story. What started out so well, it ends so badly. Just as the ark wasn't deemed important enough to bring back to Shiloh, Saul couldn't maintain the glory of God in his own heart, in his own reign. He lost the ability to put God first. That's what always happens when worship declines. You can't do it just by willpower. So, so here's the take-home life teaching from this study. Here's what worship has to do with life. That's why it's so crucially important to remember Isaiah 6, the very first study in this part about worship. There's, there's a throne. 
Never lose sight of the throne and the one who sits on the throne, that God is honored and remembered. That's why there's no sacrifice. Remember Mary, her precious ointment. Only his rule preserves your life. There's David. And, and he wants to purify the worship of Israel because he knows as a young king with a big army and big borders and all sorts of things to maintain, he knows that he can't do it with military success. He needs God at the center of everything. That's the reason. It's not that he's perfect, but that's the reason David is forever known as the man after God's own heart. I want God to be at the center of everything we do in this place. Grant that, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. That you would constantly keep all of our hearts, however long we've walked with you, our hearts just tied freshly, clinging to the feet of Jesus, humbly at your feet, relying on your grace, relying on your spirit, honoring your word. People who walk into this church for the very first time, they needn't think that I'm brilliant or that we're wonderful. But people walking into this place for the very first time need to say, God is here. God is living and working here. May that always be true, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.